Hey, it's Tori Bosch. I'm popping into your feed on a Sunday because I wanted to share an episode of the podcast, The Nocturnists, post-Row America. You may have already heard my first opinion podcast interview with Ali Block, an abortion provider and executive producer of The Nocturnists, and Nikki Zeit, an OBGYN in Tennessee. If you haven't listened yet, please do. On this episode of The Nocturnists, you'll hear more from Nikki, Ali, and other doctors trying to navigate the reproductive health landscape after the end of Roe. Enjoy and subscribe to The Nocturnists wherever you get your podcasts. At The Nocturnists, we are careful to ensure that all stories comply with healthcare privacy laws. Details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are those of the person speaking and not their employer. You're listening to The Nocturnists. I'm Emily Silverman. When the leak about the overturning of Roe v. Wade happened back in May 2022, we knew we had to do something at The Nocturnists. Rarely has a single Supreme Court ruling had such a wide-ranging and immediate impact on the practice of medicine. And rarely have those impacts been so dangerously misunderstood by those outside of healthcare. So our team decided to track the fallout of Dobbs through the voices of the clinicians at the heart of it all. In a project headed up by the Nocturnist executive producer, Dr. Ali Block, who is a practicing family medicine physician and abortion provider, we started collecting stories from reproductive healthcare workers from Texas to Tennessee, from Kansas to California, and beyond. What has the Dobbs decision meant for these clinicians and their practices? And what do these changes mean for American healthcare at large? This is The Nocturnist, post-Row America. Allow me to introduce you to your host, Dr. Ali Block. In 2014, the year I graduated my family medicine residency and started officially performing abortions on my own, 87% of U.S. counties had no known abortion provider. As a young attending entering the field, I saw the potential of a better future for the world of reproductive care. I had high hopes. What if everyone in the country who needed an abortion was more than just allowed to get one, but able to access one as well? The Dobbs decision changed everything. My hopes for the field I love so much haven't gone away, but the script beneath them has changed. Because today, in many places across the country, People who a little over a year ago may have been providing abortion care daily, people with my same job, face the risk of criminal charges if they do the work they're trained for. In our conversations with healthcare workers over the past year and a half, one thing has become clear. There's no single unified story of what this decision has meant. Instead, it's more of a tapestry of experiences. Because Dobbs didn't only make it harder to get an abortion in red states, we're also experiencing the ripple effects in the way reproductive care is taught and practiced, in how our hospitals and clinics keep us safe, and in how we calculate risk for pregnant patients. If we once had a clear sense of how this puzzle all fits together, the pieces were just shaken up and dumped on the floor. So where to begin when everybody's experiences are so varied? For this episode, we decided to start the day of the Dobbs leak in May 2022, when the world first found out that the United States Supreme Court was set to overturn Roe v. Wade. That day just so happened to also be the day of NAF, the biggest abortion conference of the year, 
put on annually by the National Abortion Federation. So NAF was in Orlando. It was one of those resorty hotels where it was like, there was a bunch of pools and, you know, it had a conference center in it. But it was, you know, it was like 80 degrees and beautiful as it is in Florida, even though like in New York, it was still barely above freezing <laughs> in like the first weekend of May. That's Jonna Menendez, a primary care abortion provider based in New York City. It was a normal conference. In, in our realm of, of medicine, unfortunately, politics is always like part of the CME conference. So there were, you know, talks about political climate and trap stuff. But that's like normal enough for any of our spaces. It's actually a, a great meeting. That's Diane Horvath, an abortion provider based in Maryland. I think this care can feel really siloed because a lot of us are not working in hospitals. We're in freestanding clinics. And so the community that we have is the community that we make. Nobody is like holding get-togethers for us, you know. And so this meeting is one of the ways that we build community. There's only a few hundred abortion providers around the country. So any opportunity to gather can feel special. And this year's conference felt particularly special. It was the first time most people had seen each other since the pandemic began. And the years leading up to the May 2022 conference had been incredibly bleak. There was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death in 2020, followed by the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Then COVID spurred a lot of conservative states to deem abortion non-essential care and put pauses on in-clinic access. And SB 8, a Texas bill that essentially made abortion illegal in the entire state, was passed nine months before the conference. Things felt like they were at a boiling point. On top of that, Roe was on the docket to be heard by the Supreme Court. Diane came out of isolation to this conference, and like a lot of people we talked to, came with a strong sense of purpose. If there was ever a time for action, this was it. One of the ways she wanted to contribute to the fight was by presenting an idea for a new clinic. I've been talking about opening my own clinic for like six or seven years. And my business partner, Morgan, and I, she has a couple of kids that are a little bit younger than my child. And we had been meeting up like quarterly to exchange clothes. So my kid grows out of stuff because kids grow really fast. And so I would pass along clothes to her kids. And one of the things we've been talking about for years is the idea of like what we would want in our own clinic. And like, if we were going to do this, like, what could this look like? We had a very successful meeting. People were very excited to hear what we had been up to, happy that another clinic was going to be opening. We managed to, like, scare up enough money to get some swag to give out, which was great. And just, like, a really good buzz. Like, people were talking about us. People were talking about the work. Diane said she felt like she was on kind of a high. And the clinic actually felt possible. Sure, there was some money to be raised and plenty of work to be done. But the support was there. And then... It was the last day of the conference. So the conference had officially ended. We were staying there one more night. We're like, we're going to relax. The, the pressure was done, right? So all that's over. It's a beautiful night. It's in Florida. It's gorgeous out. Like, you know, probably going to have dinner and then go sit in the pool. You know, like there's all sorts of like lovely evening things you can do. And so the mood was like really good. It was really positive. People were happy to have been in this like shared space together. And it just like, it was, it was really stark. Diane was getting dinner with her team, her partner Morgan, her COO, her nurse who was from Texas. So there was the four of us at a dinner table in the hotel restaurant, and we got a ping on our phones, a New York Times headline saying that the Dobbs decision had been leaked. 
you could tell that two-thirds of the people in that restaurant and the hotel were people who had been at our conference because, like, a hush fell on the room. People were texting, and, like, if you didn't see the headline, then someone sent it to you. And it took about five minutes for every single table in that place to just, like, completely shut down. Everybody was just, like, staring at their phones, like, you know, looking at each other. People were, like, holding hands. And so we pulled up the article and sat and kind of read it to ourselves at the table. The nurse that we were with from Texas started crying and said, like, I just need to go to my room. This is going to kill people. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking about all the people that are going to, like, not be able to get this care and it's going to ruin their lives. And she had to leave. And my business partner, Morgan, just was, like, blank-faced and said, I, yeah, I need to go upstairs. I would say, like, in the abortion world, we have known this was coming, and we have been preparing for this to happen, and Roe was really the floor, not the ceiling. Like, abortion care has always been so inaccessible to so many people in the U.S. Trap laws targeted restrictions of abortion providers. You know, states only had one abortion clinic, three-week wait, five-hour drive. People who have childcare needs who don't have a car, people who don't have health insurance have never been able to access care. So it was, I mean, I, I managed to keep it together in the airport. <laughs> um, and then my husband picked me up and I remember just like, I just screamed and cried next to the car for a couple of minutes. Didn't want to like get on the road because I was just too upset. Um, you, you, you know it's coming, but like just the anger in the moment. Just the irony of having been at this abortion clinic meeting and to have it happen when we were there and to know like we were going to be going back to all of our spaces, knowing that this was coming down the pike and it was just a matter of time before it was official. On June 24th, 2022, just a month after the leak, the United States Supreme Court handed down the Dobbs decision, overturning the protections on abortion that Roe v. Wade had afforded for so long. The Supreme Court has just issued, and this is the decision many were waiting for, a ruling in Dobbs. The decision is out. It's been issued by Justice Alito, and the question of abortion has been returned to the states. The moment Dobbs went into effect, trigger laws in 13 states immediately banned abortions. That number has now jumped to 26 states where abortion care is either illegal or highly restricted. What does this actually mean for the clinicians on the ground? The truth is, the answer has been different in every state, and sometimes even institution by institution. Tennessee was one of the first 13 states to ban abortion outright. But Tennessee's trigger law was more restrictive than the others. There were no exceptions, which meant that within hours of the decision, performing an abortion of any kind, even one to save the life of the mother, became a felony punishable by time in prison. Nikki Zeit was one of the doctors working in Tennessee when the law went into effect. No one in the family planning community was surprised. Everybody had been talking about, these are the three options. Roe stands with no change. Roe falls, but it's a 15-week or something like that. And then Roe falls completely. And on any given day, you could get five family planning people in a room 
and you would get five different ideas of how they thought it was going to play out. Nikki has kind of a no-nonsense way of talking. And when she spoke with us, she said that she'd been anticipating this for years, ever since she got into abortion care. For most of that time, she had been ringing alarm bells that abortion care should not be taken for granted. So after Dobbs passed, it was like everyone outside the reproductive care and family planning communities were scrambling to catch up to her reality, the one that she'd been talking about for years. There was this one case a couple of weeks after the decision, where just like normal, she had to call the anesthesiologist. I called the day before and said, I'm scheduling a felony for 11 o'clock tomorrow. No, um, <laughs> I said, uh, uh, you know, we have a patient, there's still fetal heartbeats, but her water broke at 12 weeks. She's 14 weeks now. She's starting to show signs of infection. And tomorrow at 11, we're going to proceed with the DNA. And we always gave the heads up so that we made sure we had people in the operating room that were comfortable with pregnancy termination. And so when I got there, I said, you know, thank you for covering this case to the anesthesiologist. And he's like, oh, I always do these. I'm fine with that. And I'm like, well, yeah, but thanks for aiding and abetting. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, we're about to commit a felony. And he's like, no, we're not. You told me that this is medically necessary. And I'm like, right. But our law says that it's a felony, even if it's medically necessary. And then if I'm charged... I can defend myself in explaining why I felt like it was medically necessary and just blank stare. And then he like turns around and calls the head of his department. Like she says it's a felony. I mean, like I can hear him on the phone, right? She says it's a felony. I mean, what is this? And they're like, yeah, it's a felony. So shortly after Dobbs got handed down, it was clear to Nikki that the most important thing was to get everyone at their hospital to be on the same page as much as possible and to understand what their code of conduct was going to be. And so then we started out with these weekly meetings of the head of high-risk OB, the head of labor and delivery, the chief medical officer of the hospital, the head of anesthesia, myself, the CEO of the hospital, the lobbyist for the hospital, the ethicist for the hospital, and legal counsel for the hospital. And they kind of let me run the meeting. And I said, can we all agree that our goal is to continue to provide evidence-based, compassionate health care within whatever the confines of our law end up being? We talked about what can and can't we do here at the hospital, and then what can or can't we tell patients about? Like, was there a gag order? Were we? And I mean, our trigger law was two pages. Like, it didn't say very much. It basically said, you can't do anything. So pretty quickly, they came to the realization that what the law did or didn't say was a lot worse than what they had assumed. So Nikki and her colleagues made a document. It had a list of clinical situations they felt like technically were going to be illegal, but probably wouldn't be criminalized as they didn't seem to fall within what she calls the intent of the law. The care that we had been providing for medically complex patients, ectopics, miscarriage management, prior to whatever was going to be decided, we felt like it was probably within the intent of the law. We felt where the law was going to change our hospital-based practice was going to be the care of someone that had uh, been the victim of rape or incest and the care if it was a life-limiting fetal anomaly. Those were cases that we had taken care of prior 
that were pretty clearly not going to be legal after the law. And so we felt like that was something that we couldn't say we were still going to do because it would be a much more like egregious violation. Whereas ending a pregnancy because of PROM, we could say that really is, in my good faith medical judgment, life-saving healthcare. So these are basically guidelines that she and her colleagues wrote up with some legal advice, but they knew there was no guarantee it would keep them safe. The information they were getting was still just so incomplete. We were still confused and we felt the law was vague. Like if someone has a cardiac defect and the cardiologist says that they have a 15% chance of dying, you know, we don't know. What if the DA or somebody disagrees and someone gets criminalized? And then we had people who were like, I don't want to take call and be the first one that takes care of this situation. I don't want to be the first one that does this or that unless I know that if that happens, I won't lose my job and the hospital will help pay for my legal efforts. Because up until that point, I really think that everyone just thought, okay, well, we have malpractice insurance. It'll pay for this. And I had to be like, nope. A malpractice people are like, this ain't us. Peace out. We don't do criminal. There's no malpractice for felonies. And it's also in their hospital contract. If employees are charged with a felony, they can be fired. So they wrote up this document, brought it to the hospital administration and said, okay, if we all agree to follow these rules, which is our best interpretation of the law that provides the best care, will you back us up? Can you pay for our legal fees and also not fire us? They got that protection, which was great. But in practice, it was still hard. Care was still delayed because we were calling lawyers or getting people to look at images three and four times, you know, when it was a ectopic that like previously we would have been like, oh, that's an ectopic. Let's go to the OR. Let's offer her methotrexate. Now it was like, hey, you look at this and make sure you agree and put your name on it too. And you look at this and you agree so that we can get a couple people in agreement and therefore our defense would be stronger. I mean, my documentation is pristine. You know, I would quote the law and then quote how I was complying with the law, her recommendation from counsel. And it certainly does not enhance my patient's medical care. It just takes up time and takes up space in my brain that I don't have anymore. Like, should be making sure I remember all the medications to use when somebody bleeds during a surgery, not how to quote a law. So at this point, she's followed these guidelines the best that she can, but she figures she's probably committed what the state would consider a good number of felonies anyway. I mean, a fair number. I've definitely taken care of a couple of topics surgically, a couple of topics medically, lots of miscarriage management, not a lot of them that had a heartbeat. And then a couple of true pre-viable P-proms that are a little further along, but all clearly medically indicated. I mean, the first one I did, the patient came in by ambulance with a pool of blood between her legs. So while it still was a felony, I was very, very confident that I wasn't going to be charged. And then there was another case. So her water broke at like 12 weeks and she was seen in the ER and there was a heartbeat 
And I don't think the OB team was notified. She was just given a follow-up appointment in the office. And so then we fought her in the office and my nurse practitioner immediately called and said, there's no fluid. She's 14 weeks. There's actually an IUD in the uterus with the pregnancy. You know, can somebody come down and see her now? And by the time the resident saw her, the resident felt like there was, you know, a foul discharge coming from her cervix. So I felt like that was an easy decision, but then she lost so much blood. We ended up having to give her a blood transfusion. And I remember thinking as I was hoping that she would stop bleeding and just asking the anesthesia doctors to give different meds that would help her stop bleeding. Oh my God, I'm committing a felony and she's going to die. Thankfully, I work at a really good institution that has a really good blood bank and we were able to save her. It is sad that we had to use those resources when maybe if somebody would have called us at 12 weeks, I think she would have been more on our radar and maybe it wouldn't have gotten to two weeks later. Lately, I wonder, like, am I truly, you know, safe? If there's so much happening and my name is so out there and people are crazy. I mean, I'm a Jewish abortion provider from Chicago in the Deep South. My kid just yelled, you're not in the Deep South. (laughs) I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to lose my medical license. I'm not practicing in a way that I think should cause that. I mean, we're different than the generation before Roe that was purposely providing illegal abortion care because that was the way to fix this. And, And I don't think that's the way we fix it like listening to stuff about the Janes and hearing about those things. I'm in awe of those people, but I'm not going to fix it by providing an illegal abortion for one person or even 10 people or a hundred people. Like I need to fix it by drawing attention to this issue, trying to change the narrative that we've let the anti-choice movement control for so long that makes abortion seem like such a black and white issue when instead it is incredibly gray and everyone comes at it from a different place. And we don't have to get to where we all agree on everything, Um, but certainly we can do better than where we're letting the extremists on one side completely dictate care for so many people. That line of messaging, as Nikki says, that this conversation about abortion has become so starkly black and white is a very intentional tactic employed by anti-abortion activists over the last several decades. And a part of the reason that messaging has been so effective, why the anti-abortion lobby has been able to use such a creative, sustained, and multi-pronged approach to dismantling abortion rights, is because many of those who would defend abortion access are occupied with the actual work of providing abortions. And that work has never stopped. Instead, Dobbs just made it harder, particularly for people in red states. In fact, one of the most striking aspects of the past year has been how differently the impacts have fallen across state lines. Despite the massive earthquake that Dobbs caused in places like Tennessee, in many other places, mostly blue states, the impact has been more muted. For instance, Diane Horvath and her business partner Morgan After they left NAF, they did actually manage to open their clinic in College Park, Maryland. 
We've been seeing patients since October of 2022. We have 18 staff members, and we are actively recruiting for three additional positions. We're very, very busy. Our patients are coming from all over the country and across the world. In the first three months that we were open, we saw people from 22 states and three countries. We're also looking at our three to five year plan, which is to be in a bigger building. If anything, for Diane and Morgan, Dobbs has increased the demand they see from patients, particularly later abortions due to delays in accessing care in restricted states. In some ways, the hostility they face at a national level also seems to have cemented the support they feel from their local community. The city of College Park has just been incredibly supportive. We had an incident a couple of months ago where an anti-abortion group placed some really defamatory flyers all over the neighborhood. And the result of that, I think that they thought it would make people like turn against us because they put our email address on the flyers. (laughs) But actually like people reached out to us and donated to our GoFundMe and offered to help support the clinic like with security. It actually like allowed us an opportunity to connect with our neighbors. In the year and a half since the Dobbs decision, we've seen this over and over. How disconnected and how out of touch the decision is with the actual beliefs and will of the people. As of this recording, abortion has been on the ballot in seven states since the Dobbs decision. And every time, in red states and blue states, people have voted in favor of protecting those rights, not limiting them. Those who speak out against abortion are a loud, sometimes violent minority. But mostly, Americans just want access to this basic health service. Next week, we travel to Texas to investigate a piece of legislation that revealed what losing the right to abortion access would look like before Roe actually fell. It was the culmination of the anti-abortion lobby's years of creative efforts, and it was called SB8. What might we learn by looking at the first massively successful attempt to eliminate abortion rights? The Nocturnist Post-Row America was created by me, Allie Block, and Emily Silverman. Our lead producer was Molly Rose Williams, and our producers were Sam Osborne and Jessica Young. John Oliver helped with the mixing, and Carly Besser assistant produced. Thanks to medical student producers Anjali Walia, Dahlia Kaki, Fiona Miller, and Wilkie Mahari, and pre-health intern Treya Tompkins. Our chief operating officer is Rebecca Groves. The series' illustrations are by Nicole Zhu. The Nocturnist theme music is by Joseph Monroe, and all additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The Nocturnist Post-Row America series was made possible in part by the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation. The Nocturnist is supported by the California Medical Association, a physician-led organization that works tirelessly to make sure that the doctor-patient relationship remains at the center of medicine. To learn more about the CMA, visit cmadocs.org. Our show is also made possible with donations from listeners like you. Thank you for supporting our work in storytelling. If you enjoy our show, please follow us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also help others find us by telling your friends and colleagues, posting this episode on social media, and leaving us a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. To contribute your voice to an upcoming project or to support our work with a donation, visit our website at thenotronist.com. You can also find resources with more information about the state of abortion in the U.S., as well as ways to advocate and get involved at the series website. I'm your host, Ali Block. See you next week.